It's no secret that readers don't connect with the publisher's brand. Most readers don't even know which publisher published the last book they read. The brand they connect to is the author's brand. Traditional authors with strong brands get big advances in marketing support from publishers. Independent authors with strong brands make enough money to be their own marketing support and make a small fortune besides. Authors with weak brands get ignored by publishers and readers alike. Having a strong brand is important for almost all authors. Fiction, nonfiction, published, unpublished, indie, and traditional. In short, unless your business card says ghostwriter, branding is important. You know this, I know this, we all know this, and yet most authors fail to have a strong brand because they fall prey to one of the classic blunders. Uh, the 11th, which is only slightly less well-known, is getting into a land war in Asia. If you've struggled for years feeling ignored, chances are it's because you are making one of these classic blunders. So what are the blunders and how do you avoid them? Well, that is exactly what we're going to talk about on this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, establish their brand, sell more books, and make a positive difference in the world with writing worth talking about. I'm your host, the Vulcan of book marketing, Thomas Umstadt Jr., and let's jump into the first blunder. Blunder number one is creating a for everyone brand. This is the most common blunder, and it's most common for writers who are just starting out. When you say that your brand is for everyone, what I hear is that you haven't yet started thinking about who is going to buy your book. The thinking goes like this. There are billions of people in the world, and surely some of them will want to read my book. This is not true. Those billions of people don't know who you are, they don't care about you, and when you die, they will shed no tears for you. <laughs> Traditional authors who think this way get no contracts, and indie authors who think this way only sell a handful of copies of the book they spent years to write. Now, you can't sell to a crowd. The Saturday Evening Post was a famous magazine in the United States, and it was a magazine for everyone, and it went out of business a long, long time ago. Norman Rockwell painted the covers, and Norman Rockwell has been dead for a long time. Meanwhile, Onion World, which is a magazine for people in the onion industry, is still alive and kicking. No, this is not a satirical magazine. This is a magazine for onion farmers. Not farmers, onion farmers. It has articles on how best to stack onions in a pallet. And it has advertisers of companies that make tools and machines specifically for people who farm onions. By not being for everyone, they can thrill the people they are for. The Saturday Evening Post, on the other hand, tried to be for everyone and ended up being for no one. Most writers who are just starting out are trying to be the Saturday Evening Post, and they don't realize until it's too late that the path to success in the 21st century is to be more like onion world than to be like the Saturday Evening Post. The second blunder is not knowing your target reader. It's tightly connected with blunder number one. Readers don't want to read a book that's for someone else. They want to read a book that's for them. If the first people reading your book think, I think other people would like this book, your book is dead. <laughs> Instead, you want them to say, I think Sally would love this book. There are no people, there are only individuals. 
I know this is hard to think about, but a crowd is made up of autonomous human beings <laughs> that make their own decisions. It seems common sense, but if readers can't think of a single person who would like your book, they can't think of a single person who would like your book. Groups don't buy books, individuals do. I'm going to keep saying this. <laughs> so what should you do? Focus. Even the most popular books each year are read by less than 1% of the population. Less than 1%. Most authors never reach more than 0.001%. And that may sound like a tiny number. That may sound bad, but you can make a living off of 0.001%. In fact, you can make a living off of an audience even smaller than that. The key is to know which 0.001% of the audience to target, right? You're not targeting people at random. You're specifically trying to target a niche of readers who, when they see your book, they're like, finally, I've been waiting for a book like this. I can't wait to read it. If you can't get 20 people who are reading your blog or short story to talk about it to their friends, how can you get 200 people to do it? How can you get the word to spread? You've got to be faithful in the little things. And if you're not faithful in a small niche, how will you earn a following worthy of a large niche? For word to spread, readers must be thrilled by your book. And a great step to thrilling your readers is to focus. If you've sold less than 10,000 copies of your book so far in your career, I recommend focusing your writing on one person, a single real-life human being with a name, with a birth certificate that you can actually talk to, not a composite, not an imaginary friend, not a group of people, a single person, and ideally somebody who's not related to you, somebody who is distant enough where you really have to earn their attention and you can't demand it by the fact that you are family. Once you identify your target reader, you can get to know that person, follow her on social media, take her out to coffee and ask her about the books that she's reading. Learn to thrill this individual and you are well on your way to learning how to thrill the crowd. Author branding blunder number three is picking a bad author name. As an author, the most memorable element of your brand is your name. Your name is on every cover and it's at the top of every other page. Each book you write will have a different title, but they'll all have the same author name. Your name is the glue that connects your books. It is the connective tissue that holds your brand together. So with how important a name is, you would think that authors spend a lot of time thinking about their name, but it's really easy to overlook your name as an author because you already have a name. <laughs> so why not just use the name that you have? Well, this might be a good idea, but it could also be a blunder. You need to think about it carefully before you start building a brand around your name. One common mistake I see authors make is that they pick a name that is similar to what another author has. I remember talking with one Christian author who wrote Sweet Romance, and she almost got uninvited from speaking at a church because they thought she wrote erotica. She didn't, but another author with the same name did, and that brand confusion alienated her audience. This is a challenge that I face. There are three Thomas Umstads currently living on planet Earth, or at least three that I know of. One of them is my dad, and his Austin CPA firm is right on a major highway here in Austin, Texas. In Austin, he is more famous, but outside of Austin, I am more famous because my podcast is listened by people all over the world. So how do we avoid confusion inside of Austin? Well, he goes by Tom G. Umstadt, CPA, and I go by Thomas Umstadt, Jr. 
We made our names as different as possible. He uses a middle initial, I don't. He adds CPA at the end, I add junior at the end. He goes by Tom, I go by Thomas. Now, we didn't need to cooperate to work this out. It helped that we knew each other, but if he was someone I didn't know on the other side of the world, I would just pick the other options that he didn't pick. If I saw somebody going by Tom G. Umstadt, CPA, I would have the version of my name be as different from it as possible. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the use of that middle initial because that is another common blunder. People leave off the middle initial. So adding a middle initial isn't enough to distinguish the brands. It's good for hiding something. If you have a book you don't want people to remember, change your author name on that book to have a middle initial. This is what Michael Hyatt did with his book on Y2K. His author name for his Y2K book has his middle initial, so it's not linked to his other books about marketing and leadership. And that's what a middle initial is useful for. It's good for hiding books. It's not good for being found. And so this is why I'm thankful that my dad goes by Tom and I go by Thomas. These are different enough to reduce confusion. Now, the third Thomas Umstadt in the world is my son, who we call Tommy. But if he were an author, he could go by Tommy Umstadt. That's different enough. Or he could go by T.G. Umstadt. Both of those would be different enough where they wouldn't be confused with Tom Umstadt or Thomas Umstadt. The blunder would be if he'd picked the name Thomas G. Umstadt. That's too similar to Thomas Umstadt and potentially too similar to Tom G. Umstadt, especially since readers usually live out that middle initial. So readers would confuse us and that would make it harder for him to do his brand. So when picking a name as an author, do your research first. Check to see if any authors are already using your name. Also check to see if your domain name is available because there's nothing keeping another author down the road from picking your name. In fact, if you go by you know, John S. Smith, somebody else could come in and be John Smith without the S and maybe even become the more famous version of you after you've already started publishing your books. And so what you want to do is buy johnsmith.com. If you're wanting to research to see if a domain is available, what I use is instantdomainsearch.com. I like it that it's instant. It shows you the results as you're typing them. And it also tells you if the domain is owned by somebody who has the domain for sale. So I bought umstat.com from somebody who already owned it. I think it cost me about $500 and it was worth it just to protect my name from somebody else. And then when I buy domains, I buy my domains at namecheap.com. And I'll have an affiliate link uh, to Namecheap if you want to get your domains there. They're very competitive on pricing and I own an embarrassingly high number of domains. I think I have around 100 domains at Namecheap. But the bottom line is authors who own their name.com, authors who are the only author with that name, have an advantage over those who don't. One other strategy is to go by your full name, first name, middle name, last name. And, you know, James Scott Bell, Orson Scott Card. This strategy works well, and readers do tend to include the middle name. So while they'll drop the middle initial, they'll keep the middle name, and that's another way to stand out. We have a whole podcast episode titled How to Stand Out When Your Name Fits In that goes into more strategies on how to pick your name. And we also have a podcast episode, Major Mistakes You Might Be Making With Your Author Name. And in those episodes, I talk with James L. Rubart about how much pain picking James L. Rubart as his author name has caused him. Author branding blunder number four is building a generic 
brand. No one sets out to have a generic brand, but a lot of authors end up with one anyway. I see this blunder the most often with genre novelists, but it can happen to anyone. If you write Amish or military, sci-fi or romance, it is easy for your genre to eclipse you as an author. There are fantasy books that I've read and I have no idea who the author was. I enjoyed the books, but there was nothing distinctive about the author or the story for that matter to help me remember the author. So it was just another dragon book and I read a lot of dragon books and some of them are like potato chips. I don't remember anyone specifically. I enjoyed them and then I forgot about them. The fix for this, if you're writing genre fiction, is to develop the courage to be yourself. <laughs> like the genie said in Aladdin, be yourself, as he dressed up as a bee. If you are too buttoned up in corporate, you become forgettable. When we say everyone is unique, what we're really saying is everyone is different or everyone is weird. The more you hide your weirdness, the more generic your brand becomes. So don't be afraid to be different. If all the other authors in your genre are cussing online and you don't cuss in real life, then don't feel obligated to cuss to fit in. Be different and readers will be more likely to remember you. That is actually one of the advantages that we have with this podcast. Many podcasts are explicit and explicit podcasts are blocked in some countries. India, for instance, does not allow explicit podcasts into the Apple podcast directory. And so we have less competition because we are a clean show. This is an extreme example, but it helps illustrate the point. Uh, another way to avoid being generic is to show your personality. So how do you show your personality? Well, the most common way and perhaps the most important way is to develop a clear voice in your writing. And I can hear all of you craft people, all of the editors applauding because this is all what they're looking for, at least the good ones, right? Master the fundamentals of the craft of writing so that you know when and how you can break the rules and get away with it. You need to know the most important rules so that you can know when to break the less important rules and then have the courage to write in your own voice. Another way to help readers see your personality is to write a letter to the reader at the end of your book that shows a bit of your personality. Often the letter to the reader is so generic, it's so bland, and this is a great opportunity for a little bit of that sizzle in your personality to show. So be courageous and let people see your weirdness. If you write nonfiction, another way to get more connected is to work in personal anecdotes to help illustrate the points that you're making. The more vulnerable you are with your anecdotes, the more memorable those anecdotes will be. Bottom line, if you want to avoid being generic, you need to know how you are different from other authors and have the willingness to let readers see just how you are different. Branding blunder number five is building a strange brand. Now you may be saying, but Thomas, you just told us in the last blunder not to be generic. And it's true, I did. But blunders four and five are like gutters on a bowling lane, too far in either direction and it ends in failure. While you don't want to be generic, you also don't want to be too different. If all the other authors in your genre are writing in English and you are writing in Mandarin, readers are not going to read your book. It's just too different. Now, this is an obvious extreme example, but it illustrates the point well. You have to still be approachable. You can't be so weird, so different, that they have no idea how to connect with you, or they have to learn a whole different language just to understand 
what you're saying. And we're like, well, that's never a temptation. Like, yeah, you may be surprised that the language may not be Mandarin, but the language may be industry jargon. If someone first has to learn the industry jargon before they can understand your book, you've lost them. You're too strange. You're too different. Now, this blunder is most common for authors who write for a genre that they're not a voracious reader of. I've seen it also for authors who write for an audience that they're not a part of. If you're no longer an evangelical and you're writing a book about how evangelicals are terrible, evangelicals are going to find you too strange and will be repelled by your brand. (laughs) If you don't read romance and you want to write a romance book for readers who don't like romance, you're going to face the same challenge. Each tribe of readers has their own set of expectations, and you need to be familiar enough with your genre to know what those expectations are. It doesn't mean you want to follow every single one of them and become too familiar, but when you violate an expectation, you need to do it on purpose, not because you didn't know the expectation was there. So make sure you read books in your genre. I would recommend at least one a month. That will keep you up to date with what's going on in the genre with adaptations and will help you understand why your readers love reading in that genre. Your brand needs to let readers say, this author is one of us, but your brand also needs to be different enough to be intriguing. You don't want to be so weird that you are no longer one of us, but you also don't want to be so similar that you become generic and forgettable. The only way to find this balance is to know your reader, which is why blanding blunders number two and number one are so important. If you haven't defined who your reader is and if you haven't gotten to know them, how are you able to know whether your brand is too familiar or too strange or just right? There are three little bears, but only one bear got the porridge eaten by Goldilocks. Branding blunder number six is embracing style over substance. Be careful not to focus too much on fonts, colors, logos, and the other things that readers don't notice. This mistake is most common for authors who've just gotten out of the typical branding talk at a writer's conference. These talks are often taught by graphic designers, and they focus on the services the graphic designer sells, not around what actually makes an enduring brand. Every author building a website is tempted to spend more time thinking about the style of the website than the words on the website. In fact, often when the website is built by a designer, they put in Latin. They just have Latin placeholder text because the words don't matter. It's really all about how pretty it is. We can add the words later, and the words often become an afterthought, and the website isn't very helpful. (laughs) Readers don't visit author websites because they have pretty fonts. They don't visit them because they have pretty photos. They go there because they want something. So your website had better have some substance to offer. And if you're curious why readers visit author websites, what they want, and how to thrill them, I have a whole course on this, and it is completely free. (laughs) And I have a link to that course in the show notes at authormedia.com forward slash 172. It's a very popular course all about how to build an author website and what readers are looking for on the author website. So I'm not going to go into too much detail here. You can go through that course if you want to build a website that's compatible with your brand, but also useful for your reader. Logos, fonts, and colors at best remind people about your brand, but I know of very successful author brands that don't have any of that. Stephen King has a different typographical treatment on every book he writes. I keep looking for some kind of consistency in how the font is treated for his name, and yet I can't find any. And yet he's selling millions of books he's doing just fine, and his brand is very strong. 
Why? Because the substance of his brand is strong. He writes the same kind of books over and over again, and he writes them at a consistent level of quality for the same kind of people. People who buy and enjoy one Stephen King book tend to buy and enjoy many Stephen King books. If you're at a writer's conference talk where the speaker is spending more time talking about how your business cards should match your website than they are talking about how to identify your reader's expectations and surpass them, stand up and leave the session. The speaker doesn't get it. (laughs) To build a reputation, you must be consistent about the things that matter, the things of substance. For an author, this means the writing. The authors with the strongest brands consistently meet and surpass reader expectations with their writing. Now, this is not to say that you shouldn't think about fonts and colors, but it is to say that you can only answer those questions after you have first answered the more substantive questions about who you write for and what they want. Branding blunder number seven is not picking a shelf. You know an author has a strong brand when two things happen. One, people have heard of the author, and two, when they hear the author's name, they know what kind of books the author writes. To build this kind of strong brand, it requires discipline to continue writing the same kind of book, ideally in the same genre or family of genres, in the same shelf of the bookstore. In my experience, most authors don't think this rule applies to them. They think they're a special exception, and most of them are wrong. (laughs) They are not all wrong, though, and there are a handful of authors who can write in multiple genres. But usually when they do this, those books are still to the exact same target market of readers. Trisha Goyer, who I had on the podcast last week, writes in all kinds of genres, but all of the books she writes are the kind of books she can sell at a homeschool convention, which is what we talked about in last week's episode. By doing this, she has created her own micro-genre, and she stays inside that micro-genre. When a reader walks into a bookstore, the first thing they do is decide which shelf to go to first. When you pick a genre, you're picking a shelf, and thus, you're picking a reader. My wife and I go to a lot of bookstores together, and when we walk through the front door, the first thing we do is head for different sections of the bookstore. I typically head straight to the comic book section, while she heads straight for the children's section. In many ways, these book sections are alike. They both use images and text to tell a story, but in terms of audience, they couldn't be more different. The comic book aisle tends to be full of old nerds like me, while the children's section is filled with kids and moms. When you pick a shelf, you're also picking a price point. Books in the comic book section average around $30 a book. It's why only the older people like me can afford them, whereas books in the children's book section average around $9 a book. If some of your books are on the children's shelf and some of your books are on the comic shelf, you're reaching entirely different audiences with different expectations. If you tune your brand for one, you turn off the other. The violence that makes your comic book exciting would make a mother of a toddler very angry. My toddler doesn't need to be encouraged to be more violent, many moms would say. And so this is why picking a shelf is so important. Author branding number eight is changing genres. Picking a shelf means picking a dance partner. Don't make your target reader sad by dancing with everyone else in the room. Or as they used to say, dance with the one who brung you. Each time you change genres, you set your brand back five years. It's like giving up on a video game and starting over at the beginning with a new save file. 
If you change directions in your writing every five years, you're constantly resetting back to zero and you'll never get anywhere with your brand. Now, when I say change directions, I mean in what you publish. Authors going through Novel Marketing's five-year plan are encouraged to explore all kinds of writing, you know, in all kinds of different genres, different kinds of writing, different ways of writing, and they all do this with unpublished short stories. And this is okay. This is encouraged. This helps you become a better writer. Write a dozen short stories in your genre and write a dozen short stories in other genres so you know which genre to commit to. You can change directions all you want before your first book comes out. But once that first book is published, you've created a reader expectation and they will expect your second book to be like the first. Each book you publish after that limits your options even more until you're really limited in what you can write. This is why the ninth commandment of book marketing is so important. And it is, thou shalt not publish thy first book first. There's a reason we don't let six-year-olds get married and a reason why I encourage beginning authors not to race out to publish their first book they ever wrote in their entire life. When you are getting started in writing, you don't know enough about your craft, your reader, or your market to pick a genre. (laughs) Some authors never recover from that first book they rushed to publish, or they felt like they rushed to publish. Like I spent five years publishing this book. But really, they spent five years writing the book. So be very careful with that first book. And if you're curious about the 10 commandments of book marketing, I'll have a link to that episode in the show notes. Now, I should say that you're not actually limited in what you write. You can start a pen name that is for a different kind of book. And this is, in essence, starting a brand new brand around a new kind of writing. That pen name acts as the connective tissue for the new brand, helping keep it separate, keep those books separate from the other books you're writing. And this is a practice that a lot of authors do. In fact, more than you would think, because there are many authors that you read that you don't know that they write a totally different kind of book under a totally different kind of name. But starting a pen name is like starting a whole brand from scratch, and it is a lot of work. I only recommend this for authors who've already successfully built a strong brand. Once you learn how to do it, you know how to do it again. While it is a lot of work, half the job the first time is figuring out how to do it. And so once you figured it out, starting a new brand is a lot easier. And often what I've noticed is that the biggest thing that helps authors do it faster is avoiding the blunders <laughs> because they most authors learn these blunders the hard way. They stumble into each blunder one after another, and it takes years to finally develop a brand because they forget to start with the reader. Speaking of starting on the reader, that leads us to branding blunder number nine, focusing the brand on the author. Since you are your brand, you would think that you would be the focus of your brand, but this is a mistake. It is one of the classic blunders. The focus of a successful author brand is the reader. (laughs) Otherwise, your brand is just a snake eating itself. I remember asking an author why she picked the colors that she picked for her book cover. She said that they were the colors on the bulletin of her father's funeral and that they meant a lot to her. The problem with that was that her readers didn't know her and hadn't attended that funeral, and those colors didn't mean anything to them. It doesn't matter if you like your book cover or your website or your book. What matters is if your reader likes your book, your book cover, or your website. Because remember, readers don't care about you. They care about themselves. Don't say, those readers are so selfish caring about themselves, they should care about me. 
Instead, be the adult. Take the first step towards selflessly caring about others. If you are selfless yourself, that is the first step. Care about your readers. And that caring will get their attention because you now care about what they care about, them. And after a while of consistently caring for your readers, you will find that they start to care about you in return. The first of these nine blunders are all about mistakes that keep you from becoming famous, that keep you from developing a brand in the first place. It only takes two or three rounds of people telling their friends about you to get to tens of thousands of readers. When word spreads, it spreads quickly. So getting these blunders out of the way really makes a difference. But it only spreads if you're not making the first nine blunders. Now there is one branding blunder that remains. One blunder that you can still make even after you are famous that can make it all go away. And branding blunder number 10 is scandal. When readers say you are, quote, one of us, unquote, they expect you to follow the same rules they follow. When you pick a shelf, a genre, and a target reader, you are also picking a moral code. Part of the reason you can't write for everyone is that not everyone follows the same moral system. If you present yourself as a Christian who writes for Christian readers, those readers expect you to follow a Christian sexual ethic. A photo of you on your yacht with your mistress will alienate those readers. If you write for vegans and a photo emerges of you hunting lions in Africa, that scandal will alienate your readers. If you write for big game hunters, on the other hand, that photo is the price of admission. They're not going to believe that you're one of them until they've seen a photo of you in a dead big game. Once you know who you write for, you know whose opinion matters. The only people who can cancel you are your own readers. If Amish readers don't like how violent your space marine stories are, who cares? <laughs> they don't read your books now, and so them promising not to read your books in the future doesn't matter. In fact, the more they talk about how much they dislike your Space Marine books, the more attention you get, and that could actually boost sales. This is why J.K. Rowling's sales go up every time she gets canceled. Her tweets don't alienate her core readership, but the attention that they bring reminds her core readers that it's been a while since I've read a Harry Potter book. I think it got lost. Maybe I need to buy the Harry Potter books again. So live your life in secret as if your readers were watching, because they are. You can't hide. Everyone has a camera in their pocket, and a photo can spread around the world before you get home from vacation or hunting or whatever. There is more to this than just avoiding the sins of your community, though. It also means following the expected behavior. If you write for a Christian audience, join a church and attend on Sundays. If you write for Apple fans, buy an iPhone. If you write sci-fi books, read other sci-fi books. If you write football romance, read romance and also watch football. Now, I should say that if you found yourself making one or more of these blunders, don't worry. I've worked with many very successful authors and most of them have made one of the above blunders before. Not so much the scandal one. That one's harder to recover from, but the other nine you can recover from. In fact, almost every author makes at least one of them. Branding is a process and it takes time to build a strong brand. It takes time to discover who you are. It takes time to discover how you're different. It takes time to discover the courage to let those differences be seen. And if you're willing to put in the work, 
And if you're willing to put your reader first, which I will say for most authors is the hardest thing. They want to put their story first, but you have to put your reader first. It's the only way. You too can build a powerful brand. And if you're just starting out, if you can avoid these blunders, you can build a strong brand faster than you ever thought possible. Speaking of spreading the word, I want to tell you about my new course, Obscure No More. If you want help with platform building, if you want help spreading the word about your book and your brand, this course will help you with every aspect of that process. It's called Obscure No More, and it's currently in beta release. A limited number of students are getting access to the course before it's finished. They're getting the sessions as I make them. And right now, three modules are already live, including the module on branding. Also, many of the courses I plan to make over the next few years will be included for free inside of Obscure No More. This includes a course on search engine optimization, a course on blogging, a course on PR, a course on how to start a podcast, and so much more. The full release of the course will hopefully be in fall of 2021. And as of this recording, there are six beta spots left. (laughs) So it's not too late if you want to grab one of the beta spots. And I should say that once the beta sells out, the price of the course is going to go way up. Now, some of my advisors are encouraging me to not make it a one-time purchase anymore, but switch it to a $49 a month subscription, like a membership plan where it's always $49 a month and you stay for as long or short as you want. Um, The other option is we're thinking about a one-time fee of $1,500 for the course, and we might offer both options. But right now, you can get the course for a one-time payment of $495 or 12 payments of $49. And after that, nothing more. You get all of the future lifetime updates for free. So right now is a good time to get the course if you're thinking about it. Just use the coupon BETA at checkout or click the link in the show notes to activate the coupon code automatically. Now, while this podcast is free to you, it's not free to produce. There's a team of people who work very hard to bring you each episode. I host and record, William Umstadt edits the audio, and Shauna Letellier crafts the blog post versions. And most importantly, novel marketing listeners like you help keep the show on the air by becoming patrons at patreon.com slash novelmarketing. Patron levels start at as little as $3 a month and come with some really cool bonuses, including a bonus episode every month that only goes out to patrons. Our featured patron today is Eloise White, author of Soul Inspirations. Gain a new relationship with Jesus as you trust him as your confident healer and life-giving friend. And thank you, Eloise White, for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. I really appreciate it. If you can't afford to become a patron but still want to help the show, you can. Just share this episode with one person you think would find it helpful. Hopefully you can find one person who would find it helpful. Otherwise, I have failed my job at creating a helpful podcast. You've been listening to Thomas Umstead Jr. on the Novel Marketing Podcast talking about branding. To find the blog version of this episode or to get new episodes delivered to your phone automatically or to search through our over 270 previous episodes, go to authormedia.com. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.